You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. This is our sermon series, Experiencing Jesus. We will explore how the gospel embodied creates a culture, a feel, and an experience. The gospel of Jesus says something, and it does something, and both are important. This morning, our text is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. God's word for us this morning says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And now, Spirit of God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to believe? Would you help us to to know you more and love you and help us to, to see and know the beauty of what your son Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we can have this cleansing from all sin, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So help us this morning, help us to believe, help it spur us on to love you and love others more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Awesome. Thank you, Hayden. Uh, in case we've never met before, my name is Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And just like what's been said probably a few times, just to say welcome. I encourage you to make your presence known uh, by filling out a connect card. I'd love to meet you at the blue start here sign, which is where I'll be at the end of the service. Um, so today we are kind of in the middle of a series we're just doing for a few weeks here in January, uh, where we just entitled it Experiencing Jesus. And all we're trying to do is just try to... Um, as best we can, like, what would it feel like to be in the room with Jesus and identify what that is and, and talk about it? Because uh, part of what we want to do as a church is embody uh, that kind of culture, that value that Jesus has when you're with him. And so last week we talked about uh, kind of a culture of grace. And so today I, I want to talk about a culture of honesty. And I I think both of these go hand in hand. You can't have a culture of honesty unless you have a culture of grace. And so uh, if you weren't here with us last week, just encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, message and see in some ways that we can continue to cultivate that within our community. And so sometimes the best way to start off by talking about honesty is to talk about what it's not first before we talk about, because I'll spend the majority of time talking about what I'm wanting and what I think John's trying to get after here in this little letter. So I'll spend just like maybe three minutes talking about what it's not when I'm talking about a culture of honesty. So I've got a good friend of mine and this didn't land really well in the first service. So it may not land well in the second, but we'll just go for it anyway, because I have no other illustration. This is what I got. Amen. 
Um, and so I, maybe it just kind of landed a little too like, oh, that's, that was really horrible. Uh, but I got a good friend of mine, no one in this room, nobody in the church, right? Everybody always thinks, hey, is he talking about me? Uh, no, no one in here, no one in our church, just a good friend of mine um, who a few years ago, his wife was kind of like just struggling with how she looked and felt unattractive and just needed a little boost. You know, just like you, you go through those seasons, right? You just need someone to encourage you that, yeah, you, you are still attractive, all right? So goes to her husband and says, just ask, you know, the loaded question that I'm sure if you're married here, you've probably had it from your wife. Who do you think's the most prettiest woman? Anybody had that asked to them as a husband? Okay, maybe not. Nobody? No, okay, super. Um, so this is probably not gonna land well. That's all right, but we're gonna go for it anyway. So he, she goes to uh, uh, her husband says, all right, who do you think is the most attractive, most prettiest, you know, the prettiest woman, wanting him to least say something about her in the answer. And this is what my friend said to her immediately. He says, hey, let me think about it. <laughs> Man, I don't, I don't know where you missed that, right? In marriage 101, right? I'm just like, you just lie, whether you believe it or not, right? I mean, I just, so, and it doesn't get any better. Like, so he actually thinks about it and comes back to her in a couple days and says someone else. <laughs> Another woman that's on TV or something like that. And so obviously it didn't go over well and uh, we laugh about it a lot now, but in the moment it was not uh, very pleasant at all. So when I'm talking about a culture of honesty, I'm not talking about that, amen? What I'm, what I'm trying to kind of bring out is more of the, if you want to kind of hear what I'm after, it's, it's the opposite of it would be hiding, right? Um, which we're really good at it. So let, like, can we all just own that? We're really good at hiding. We're, we're really good at putting a veneer up. We're really good at saying we're okay, we're doing well, when in actuality we're not. I've heard one pastor a long time say that probably the most dishonest hour of your week is when you show up at church on Sundays because you're singing songs that are really not resonating and true to what's going on inside of you. It doesn't mean you don't sing, all right? This is a sermon in and of itself. So just a cute little side note. In Psalm 103, David had to command his soul to, hey, I want you to sing out. So sometimes we're times where we can sing out and say, hey, this is not where I am. This is where I want to be. And singing out can get us there. There's something healing there. So that's a, sorry, that's a little freebie, I guess. All right. So, but what I'm, what I'm trying to get after here, and, I'm, and I'll get more into this in just a few minutes, is I, I'm, I'm trying to fight against a culture of hiding, which is instinctive in us. It's just in us. And so for us to fight against a culture of hiding, we've got to be willing to risk and create a culture of, of honesty. Uh, another word would be like transparency, genuineness. Um, buzzword in our culture is authenticity. So I'm not, I'm not talking about that, right? I'm not, uh, and the way I would, I would uh, nuance it a little bit is that I'm not after honesty for honesty's sake. I'm after transparency and honesty because I wanna live into more of who I am now in Jesus Christ. I convictionally believe that he defines what is the good life, how I am to live. And part of my maturing and growing into that is being honest with what's going on me and where I am currently. I would also add to that, it's not honesty just for honesty's sake, I'm, I'm, it's a means to an end. And I would also say that part of us wanting to create a culture of honesty is here, here's because we wanna have a culture of love. 
And I would say to you that lack of honesty sabotages love. That's what we see here in 1 John. And we probably could have gone to a lot of different passages of Scripture. um, But this one kind of grabbed my attention primarily, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time. There are kind of two commands there. I want to kind of land on these two commands here in just a minute that that I think helps us um, understand how we can kind of cultivate this kind of culture here. But part of what John is writing here is he's trying to help this new church know what it looks like to love one another and at the same time have sin. <laughs> it's all over the place, right? And so I'm not, uh, I may not be unpacking everything in these two verses or maybe a few things I'm purposely not unpacking because I'm emphasizing a couple aspects here. Uh, but the good news is this, is that we start our men's and women's Bible studies the first Monday in February and we're working through 1 John. So whatever I miss, amen, you'll get there. So, so there we go. So let's be good stuff. Uh, but let, let me just jump in here real fast. So start off here in verse five. So John makes this, um, this statement about the very nature and the character of who God is. He says this, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. So right here at the onset in verse five, he's making a a statement about the nature and the character of God. And it seems like based on the context, he has more of an ethical sense to this idea of God being light. Meaning, as one commentator says, God is the source and the essence of holiness and righteousness and goodness and truth. In him, there is nothing that is unholy or unrighteous, evil or, say it out loud, false. So that truth of God being light kind of colors the rest of these passages. And what John does here is he gives us in the verses we just read five kind of conditional clauses. I know I'm like going back to English class, which I was horrible in English and still am, as you probably know. It's like, if you're an English teacher and you're like, oh my gosh, wow, your language is a train wreck. But there's five conditional clauses that Uh, John goes through in these verses six through 10. You see those uh, by just the word if in in our English translation. And so three of them are kind of false ideas that he's dealing with within this church community. And two of them are kind of the the truth that counters these false ideas. And where I want to land, I want to land primarily in those two truths uh, because they're the two commands within this passage. I'll highlight the three false ideas. Come back in a few weeks on a Monday night. Eventually, we'll unpack them a little bit more. But let me quickly, uh, because I want to spend the majority of my time talking about these two truths that counter some of these false claims. Let me quickly highlight these three false claims here. The first one's found in verse 6, where John says, if, there's the cleat. Uh, the, the, you know, the clue word there. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. In essence, here's the first false claim. Some people in the church were saying, I can have an intimate relationship with Jesus and still walk in sin. That's in essence what he's saying here. When he's using the word darkness, remember it's the ethical sense, so to speak here. It's a metaphor for their way of life. Their way of life is still walking in darkness, that there's, there's a practicing of sin that's going on in our life. As, that's why later on in chapter three of 1 John, he says this, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Doesn't mean that you will be perfect. He'll address that here in just a minute. But the way that's written, it's more habitual. 
It's a, a practice of sinning. Well, why, John? Because this seed remains in him. The very seed of God is in him. He's not able to sin because he has been born of God. So the first false claim is to think that I can have an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus and still be practicing and living and sin. And that's still true today. Many of us in this room probably know a ton of people who know the lingua and the language and would say themselves a Christian, but Jesus has no central figure in their life. So it's not like this is something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's still prevalent in our day. False claim number two is sent in verse eight, where he says, if we say we have no sin. So, so the idea behind this is that He's, he's trying to address this false idea that, our, um, that there's no bent in us, that there's not this natural disposition towards sin, that we have not, as we talk about right here, inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve, that actually our bent is not toward God. It's not toward righteousness. Our bent is toward sin and evil. And I've said this a million times around here. And if you're a parent, you get this. You don't have to teach your kid how to lie. They do it naturally. Amen, right? There's not been one time. I've got four boys. I never have done this before. Never sat down with them and says, look, man, you're telling the truth way too much. It's like, we need to work on your lying, right? Never done that. Why? Because there's something in us. The problem is not primarily outside of us. The problem is primarily inside of us. And in this church, there was this false claim that no, no, we're actually clean slates. No, no. You've got a bent. You've got an inner disposition away from God and toward sin. Doesn't mean that we do all the evil that's in us. No, that doesn't, doesn't mean we sin as crazy and outlandish as ever. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that those who are not in Christ cannot do good things. No, that's part of what I would put before you, God's grace that's present in everybody holding back the evil that we can actually engage in. All right, that's false claim number two, getting into other sermons. I mean, false claim number three is found in verse 10 when he says this, if we say we have not sinned, this sounds weird. Like, man, what is this deal? It sounds like he's saying the same thing over and over again. But verse eight is talking about the inner disposition. Verse 10 is talking about actual sins. So there was this idea in this church, obviously, that they could reach some level of maturity and perfectionism, so to speak, right? And, and honestly think that they get a place where they no longer commit sins. And John's just going, look, no, no way. You make him a liar. Who's him? It is God. You make God a liar because God's dealings with all people rest on the basis that we are sinners who sin. Present tense, not just past tense, right? Present tense. And we all need a savior. So those are the false claims, these, these false ideas that are rolling around in the, true, the church there. And so what John is trying to do here, all right, is like I said at the beginning, he's trying to help this community learn what it looks like to love one another and deal with all this sin that's still happening in the present tense, right? So that's, that's, he's giving some instructions here. It's where these, these two kind of other counter, these other conditional clauses that counter these three false claims are kind of two truths here. And they're not just truths that he wants us to conceptually believe in, which that is in there, but they are commands. And he, what he's really after is for us to live into this. And I would say that these are two very important pieces for us to continue to create a culture of honesty. That if the gospel is true, 
that I don't have to perform anymore to have a right relationship with God, that I can be done away with my performance because he has performed perfectly for me, then a fruit of that is I don't have to hide. But I can be honest. And so look what he says here. Here are the kind of the two... um, commands here that help us cultivate a culture of honesty. And these are the invitations for us. The first one is this, is that we walk in the light. So if God is light and we are children of God, then we also are going to be a people who walk in the light. And walk is a metaphor of your way of living. Like what he says here, Starting again in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, our way of life is still marked by darkness, then we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. Counter truth. If we walk in the light, walk is a command. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to walk in the light can also be said to walk in honesty, with one another. So a sign of our own maturing and growth as a follower of Jesus Christ is obviously not perfection. It's not faultlessness. It's not even necessarily sinning less, even though there may be some sins where you find progress in. But the mark of maturing is we live honestly with one another. And notice that a result or a fruit of living and walking in the light is that we will have fellowship with who? Yeah, it's not a trick question. I mean, I no slide here. You'll have fellowship with, say it out loud, one another. What I'm expecting there is that I would have fellowship with God. So if I'm walking in the light, if I'm walking honestly, then my expectation of that verse is that I will have fellowship with God. I think that's obviously implied here, but by John highlighting the idea that we will have fellowship with one another, I think what he's helping us see here is that when we sin, there is damage. There are consequences to that, obviously, but the greater damage is when we sin, the greater damage comes when we start hiding and covering up and not speaking Honestly, all of us in this room have experienced this, have you not? That once you brought something to light where you sinned against someone and then they find out how much you covered it up, what hurt worse? It wasn't just a sin necessarily, it's the work that you did over the next few weeks, months, maybe even years of trying to hide it. And so I would also say, not only does it do damage horizontally, I would also say it does damage and it hardens our own souls and does damage to us. I think that's part of the reason why John says, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us. There's, there's some kind of soul effect by the cleansing of our own sin through the work of Jesus Christ. So not only does it harden and make 
damage here horizontally in our relationship, it also, by us living dishonestly, it does something to our own psyche, to our own souls. Why? Because we're not created to live in duplicity. Because God, who we are children of through his son, Jesus Christ, is light and there's no duplicity in God. So then therefore, if I'm living in dishonesty, then there's something happening to my own soul. I love how one writer puts this. When we do wrong, we either have to stop hiding what we're doing or in honesty and contrition admit our weakness Otherwise, our spirits will spontaneously begin to harden and to warp. Such is the anatomy of the soul. It cannot tolerate moral duplicity for long without having to reshape and distort itself. Lying, especially to ourselves, hardens and corrupts the spirit. So in light of this, this walking in honesty, walking in the light, let me ask you a couple of questions, right? What are you hiding? And I know there's an awkward silence. Some of you are thinking, did Delilah forget what he's going to say? I'm just trying to make it a little awkward, right? I, I'm kind of making the assumption here, and maybe this is off. I'm making the assumption that all of us are rolling here with something we're hiding. One writer says this, we are as sick as our sickest secret, but we are also as healthy as we are honest. Anyone who's ever struggled with any kind of addiction will tell you this, sobriety is only 10% about alcohol or a drug. It's 90% about honesty. You can drink if you can do it honestly. Indeed, you can almost do anything if you don't have to lie about it. The need to hide some actions from others is a strong moral Nudging. Can you cheat someone? Can you be sexually unfaithful? Can you slander someone? Can you lie? Can you commit any kind of sin and feel comfortable in sharing that openly with those who are closest to you? When we are walking in the light, present tense, we are walking in honesty. What are you hiding? That's why Proverbs 10, 9 says this, the one who lives with integrity lives securely. But whoever perverts his ways will be found out. What if living in the light is living in such a way where there's nothing hidden? It's the first question. What are you hiding? If it is true that we are as sick as our sickest secret, but we're also as healthy as we are honest, then what are you hiding? Second question in light of this, walking in honesty and walking in the light. 
Who really knows what is going on in you? Yes, the context that John is talking about here is primarily about sin. And and at the same time, I think also what can be implied here too is also this honesty about what is really going on in you. It may be sin, but it may not be sin. Who really knows right now what's going on in you? An example of what I'm talking about here or even a visual of what I'm talking about here is like Genesis chapter three. And I know man, that's the worst chapter in all the Bible, but, but when all hell broke loose, as I've said before, and, and, and God comes down in and, and search of Adam and Eve, he asks a question. You guys remember this? Talk about this right off. He says, where are you? And then the first response to Adam is the most honest response he makes. I mean, it goes downhill after that. But what does Adam say when he says, where are you? I was a, say it out loud, afraid. I was afraid. And so I hid. That's honesty. That's where Adam was. He's declaring what's going on inside of him. I was afraid. So where are you? I mean, Rick did a great job just talking a little bit about this in our own confession. Are you coming in cynical? Are you coming in weary? Are you coming in tired? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you angry with God? Do you feel like he's letting you down? And the reason why I think this is so important, guys, is because if we don't deal with our reality, and when I say deal with our reality, if we don't name our reality, we can do nothing with it. Because what God is inviting us into always is an honest relationship with him. And an honest relationship with him is that we tell him what is going on inside of me, even if it feels like I'm almost being heretical. That's what Jesus is pushing us to. Like, I don't want all the nice words. This is Jesus. He doesn't want the nice words. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to hear what we, we, we think he wants us to hear. No, he wants to hear what's going on in you. I mean, go read John chapter four. When he met the woman at the well, he pushed her. He pushed her. Finally got her to admit, oh, yeah, you're right. That husband I'm shacking up with is not my husband. Jesus knew that from the get-go, Right? And she felt the welcoming presence of Jesus, even though he knew every single thing about her because she left the presence of Jesus and went to her town and says, hey, come meet the guy that knows everything about me. And he still welcomed me. So who really knows what is going on in you? That's in part what it looks like for us to walk in honesty. Honesty is the path to Jesus and the fruit of being with Jesus. And we want to create a place here where it's safe, where we can live in the light and fight the tendencies to hide. So it's this first invitation, the first command. The second one is this in verse eight. And these go hand in hand. Can't have one without the other. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. But we confess our sins. Look what he says here, starting in verse eight. If we say, 
We have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Jesus, talking about Jesus here, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like I said, these two go kind of hand in hand, honesty and confession. I would say it's a fruit of being honest and living and walking in the light. We confess our sins. So John does not have the expectation of perfection, nor does John have the expectation that there will not be sin within this community. Even though we do. We're surprised when we're hurt in this community. We're shocked when we're sinned against in this community. I mean, am I the only one that would acknowledge that? I was in student ministry for 20 years and I sat down with a lot of loving parents and I love them to death. And one of the common conversations I would have with parents after a retreat or a week away or doing this, I would sit down with them and they said, like my son or daughter heard this and it's a church camp. My son or daughter went on this retreat with you and they came back and said they heard blah, 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 blah. Like what in the world is going on? And I'm like, I try to be really patient and hear them and acknowledge that, hey, this is not what we want. We don't want people saying the F-bomb when we go on a retreat. We're sorry that your kid heard that, but I'm not the Holy Spirit for crying out loud. I'm one person trying my best to navigate what's going on in this community. And at the same time, this is not a safe place. There are 15, 16 year olds who sin. And I didn't say this to them, but just like you do, right? (laughs) I didn't say that to them. I wanted to, maybe now that I'm 52, I may feel the boldness (laughs) to do it. When I was in my twenties, like a little arrogant, amen? So the expectation from John is that this community is not going to be sinless. Actually, he's expecting us to sin. So then, therefore, we confess. We confess. And who do we confess to, Lyle? Well, John's not really specific. I think he implies, first of all, we confess these sins to God. He talks about Jesus specifically. So yeah, there's a, there's a confession that happens vertically, but also I think what's implied here too is what we confess with one another. He's writing this into a church community. They're not isolated individuals where their relationship's just about them and God. No, it's their sin affects the community. And so there's an there's a implication that, yeah, you're gonna confess your sins one to another. James explicitly says this in James chapter five, verse 16, when he says this, therefore confess your sins to who? To one another. Pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. So why, Lyle? Why, James? Why, John? Why do I need to confess my sins to one another? Because sometimes confessing your sins to God and God alone is easy. It's really hard and humbling to sit down with a brother or a sister and look them in the eyes and say, I need to confess the sin of lust. That's tough. That's really hard. Especially you show up two weeks later and you're confessing the same sin, right? It's way easier sometimes to just confess our sin to God 
instead of to one another. And so let me ask you, if we're going to create a culture of honesty, right, it, it isn't something that just happens abstractly or like, oh, this will happen. on No, it's, it's us being willing to take the risk and engage in relationships with one another and actually confess our sins. So let me ask you, who are you confessing your sins to? Present tense. Like we... We know this, we need to be reminded of this, that the power of sin can sometimes be easily broken when we just tell it and bring it into the light. All of us in this room, if you've been a Christian for a while, have experienced that. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe we need to take it a step back, right? Maybe it's not just confessing the sins that we carry out. What if we just confess the struggle? Are you following me? Like we don't normally wake up and decide today I'm going to sin X. That's going to happen right now. It's going to happen at five o'clock, right? Most of the time it's like a journey, so to speak, Right? Like there's a struggle, kind of questioning, maybe a thought, maybe a glance, maybe here. Like it, it's a little process. So what if we confess way back here? Not that that struggle is a sin. I'm just saying, what if we just said, you know what? I'm struggling with envy. There have been times I've sat down with Kathy and said, look, man, I, this is what's going on in me right now. I'm very impatient. I'm insecure. Who are we confessing our sins to? It doesn't have to be everyone, because that's really stupid. Amen? That's not what James is saying, nor John. But find somebody. Who is that? Who really knows what's going on in you? And who are you confessing your sins to? To. Uh, yeah. I'm not trying to make this easy in any stretch of the imagination. I'm not. And even when we do confess our sins, please hear me. Like, look, the goal isn't for this individual to necessarily fix you, as we see in James, right? Not that we shouldn't offer counsel and advice. I'm not saying that. But primarily, we are to pray for one another so that we can be healed. So cultivating a culture of honesty begins with us walking in the light, walking in honesty, not hiding, bringing things into the open and confessing our sins to one another, not everyone, but someone. So how do we cultivate this more and more in our own church community? First, I would say, hey, let's just commit to praying. Let's pray for the courage to really cultivate this and live into this. 
Number two, like I don't know where you are, but maybe you're here and you don't have a relationship or even name somebody that you feel safe to do this with. And so I just wanna say that part of your prayer maybe is that God would provide a relationship with, for you in, so that you can live out in this way and confess your sins so somebody can know where you are and not just pray, but also pursue after it, initiate it, go after it. I mean, I, like I can't make this necessarily happen for you, but we do try to create some spaces where some of these relationships can happen. Try to create spaces in community groups, through Bible studies, serving alongside one another. You know, even this gathering, you know, you don't have to rush out after we do the benediction. You can linger, you can talk, you can ask someone over to lunch. And who knows? I don't, you know, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, look, not only pray, but also initiate, pursue this in your life if you do not have it. It's so paramount for you in your own health. And then thirdly, I don't know if this is a good one, but it's just one that came to my head. Go first. If you're in a community group already, or if you already got a friend group that you kind of meet with on a consistent basis, like just be the first one to go. Just say, hey, this is where I'm at today. I'm kind of angry. This is where I'm at today. I'm feeling a ton of anxiety. Hey, man, I'm struggling with lust. Like, go first. I don't know what will happen. It may just be really weird and awkward. And everybody go, oh, let's pray. I don't know. I, I, probably nine times out of ten, that's how it's going to be, Right? because we're just so good at hiding and everybody wants to keep the veneer up. And I'm not saying that the next time you meet with the guys, it's going to be amazing. And wow, it was just crazy. All the floodgates opened up. No, I'm just, I'm just saying, man, I want to cultivate this in my life. And so maybe I, I go first. Not that I was trying to do some kind of project or whatever, but I was hanging out with my oldest son a few months ago and I just felt the nudging to let him in on what I'm struggling with. We just went and saw my mom. And there was just a part where I just wanted to like, look, we're, I know I'm your dad, but you're an adult. There's a way we're kind of peer to peer in some level. And I want you to see that some of the things I think you're struggling with, I'm, I'm struggling too. And it doesn't mean that we had this amazing moment in the car at all. I mean, it was fine. It was good. I'm trusting it was the Holy Spirit nudging. Go first, Lyle. Go first. Let him in. Let him in. For some of you that are married, this is what you need to do with your spouse. You need to go first. And he let you in. Some of you have been in friendships for a really long time. And you're trying to think through like, okay, man, I really want this to go a little deeper. Maybe you go first. It's part of building and cultivating a culture of honesty. So I end with this, and I know this may be a really weird leap, all right? So it sort of worked in the nine 
Maybe it'll work better in the 11. First illustration worked a little bit better than this one, so uh, maybe this one will be too. I, I'm a longtime Kentucky Wildcat fan, always have been since I was a little kid. They didn't do very well yesterday, so, uh, but that's okay. Moving on from that. Um, but I started watching Kentucky basketball when Joby Hall was uh, was the head coach. And so in case you don't have a clue who Joby Hall is, um, here's a picture of him in his later later days. He used to be the head basketball coach for Kentucky back late 70s, kind of mid or mid 70s to mid 80s, uh, won a national championship in 1978. And he probably wasn't my favorite coach at the time. There's a lot that you can be really annoyed about Joby Hall and how he recruited and played and whatever. It just was annoying at that time. Um, but as most of you probably know, is that he passed away here about a week ago. I think he was in his 90s when he passed away. And I've been hearing just like uh, here and there, little, little sports talk radio about his life and that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. One of the consistent things uh, that I heard from almost everyone that kind of knew his life and played with him or played coached un- or played under him as a coach is that um, that he was such a jo- jovial, kind, um, uh, just a free spirit about him. There's a joy about him that they always talked about. And every single one of them would say this, that was after the coaching years <laughs> that you would experience Joby Hall as being jovial, excited, you know, kind of, you know, free-spirited and, and whatever, you know, but he's always after the coaching years. And the reason why that's the case is why? Because being the head basketball coach for the University of Kentucky is a burden, right? Amen. It's a big old burden. It's a weight that you're carrying. And when you take that weight off, woo, right? It's like, yeah, I'm way more free-spirited, way more jovial, easier for me to laugh when that massive burden is off my chest. And I know maybe this is a, a jump, but I, I do think this is similar to confession and honesty. Sin is a weight, is it not? It's a burden. And the only way that we can relieve that weight and burden is, is not to listen to the enemy and keep hiding. It just isn't going to work. And it's almost like you're sacrificing your own joy if you continue to hide. But the way that burden is gone and lifted, confession. Walking in in honesty. Good news of the gospel is that God knows the very, very worst about you and it is still safe to come to him. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.